This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. I am a, on faculty at Montclair State University in New Jersey, and I am joined today by Anthony Cronman. He formerly served as the dean of Yale Law School from 1994 through 2004, and he has been at Yale since uh, for over 40 years. He is the author of multiple books, including Education's End, Why Our Colleges and Universities Have Given Up on the Meaning of Life, and Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan. He joins us today to discuss his latest work, The Assault on American Excellence. Mr. Cronin, or Dr. Cronin, thanks so much for joining us on New Books Network. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. So this is um, a new entry in a long line of books in America, critical of the Academy. And uh, these uh, seem to have been uh, periodically published since, I guess, the early 1980s. Uh, why do you think that is, and what does your book add to the conversation? Let me start with the second question, um, and then back up to the, the, the uh, first one. Uh, my own uh, strong sense is that in the last half dozen years or so, the political forces, which have been uh, um, uh, filtering into uh, academic life steadily over the last couple of generations have accelerated, have picked up pace, and begun to do damage to core academic values in ways and to a degree that wasn't true before. So in writing this book, I was motivated by a sense of urgency and the need, as I felt it, to respond to what was quickly becoming a crisis in higher education, what had been a problem for a very long time, but was becoming a genuine crisis. Um, uh, what, what explains these uh, periodic uh, uh, cranky <laughs> interventions of one kind or another, complaining about uh, the demise of uh, higher education and the humanities in particular? Well, many, many things, but I would emphasize one in particular. For some time now, the humanities as a uh, discrete a family of disciplines have lost the confidence in themselves that they once had when the rationale for studying and teaching them seemed clearer to students and faculty alike. That was true in the 1950s and the 1960s, really up through the time that I graduated from college, uh, toward the end of the 
1960s. But in the last uh, several decades, the last 40 years, really, the, the, the uh, students and teachers of the humanities have become less certain uh, than uh, they once were about the aim and objective of these uh, modes of inquiry and study themselves. And that, I think, has uh, created a, a mood of anxiety among those who uh, love the humanities, feel attached to them, teach them, or drawn to them as, as students about what it is they're doing um, when they're pursuing the study of history or philosophy or uh, literature or classics. That's been true for a long time. I think it is uh, uh, strikingly, disturbingly true today and uh, was, again, one of the motives that uh, moved me to write this book. So the humanities has been uh, criticized from different quarters. Uh, at the collegiate level, you've had criticisms that were voiced actively or most notably in the 1960s with students who were at both elite and less selective universities arguing for changes in the curriculum. Uh, it seems to me I was not alive in the 60s. I was born in 1970. But in, in, in of course, reading about this, it seemed to me that uh, the tension was to what degree the students would be placated, uh, to what degree administrators and faculty were willing to concede to student demands. But today, uh, it seems that one of the, and if my interpretation of that is uh, at odds with your own, then please step in. But it seems to me that uh, today, one big difference is there's not much of a tension between the faculty and the students. In other words, there's a kind of an acquiescence from the get-go. Is that your impression as well? Both uh, uh, yes, Ian. Your second observation is accurate. But the first one um, about what uh, was happening in the 1960s, I'd like to qualify in a couple of respects. It is true that student demands for curricular reform, um, uh, of which we, you know, see many fresh ones, or it seems almost every week these days, um, began in earnest in the 1960s. Um, uh, demands to establish departments of African American studies, eventually of gender studies, and uh, the like. These were. Um, uh, demands or proposals that uh, first began to be heard in the 1960s. But here's the qualification. The, uh, the student uh, protest movement of the 1960s, uh, in which I was an active and enthusiastic participant, um, was directed mainly at events and institutions off campus. Um, our two primary targets were civil rights in America and ending the Vietnam War halfway around the, the world. Um, for the most part, we were content to go forward uh, teaching and learning, uh, learning as, as, as students, pretty much as our predecessors had. I certainly felt no uh, a, a conflict myself at the time between the more or less still traditional curriculum 
that I was following at Williams College uh, and my uh, student activism, which, as I say, was uh, directed outwards at uh, things and people and events in the in the world at large. Um, today, the uh, students who are demanding uh, change of one kind or another for the most part, have in mind changes on their campuses themselves. Uh, the uh, uh, reform of faculty hiring practices, of student admissions practices, the reform of the curriculum, and so on and so forth. There's something very much more self-directed, even self-absorbed about student protest movements today. But your second point uh, about the uh, alignment between faculty sentiment and belief on the one hand and student sentiment and belief on the other is very well taken. And uh, I would say, with the exception of a few quiet and more tradition-minded faculty, uh, among whom I certainly include my myself, most of my colleagues are energetic and enthusiastic supporters of the students who are demanding more educational reform on campus. In many cases, they're leading the charge them, themselves. So students and faculty are allies in a common cause. That's true today to a, degree, to a degree that it wasn't 50 years ago. And the, uh, and the, uh, and the campaign for reform that they are jointly leading, if I can put it that way, is one that is self-directed at the academy itself and at the reform of its practices. Do you see much resistance on the part of administrators, however? Very little, you know, and even among faculty who regret this and, uh, and, uh, and fear that um, their schools are being run over by uh, political, politically motivated uh, movements of one kind or another that are damaging core values of higher education. Even faculty who feel strongly this way keep quiet and hide in the shadows and uh, are reluctant to come forward and speak their mind because the culture on campus is run so strongly in the opposite direction. With regard to administrators... Most, so, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, most college presidents today are career bureaucrats. They have grown up in in college administration. They've made their careers administering in one capacity or another as deans or provosts, heads of departments, and uh, and moved up the. Uh, administrative ladder until they've reached the peak and find themselves sitting in the president's chair at their college or, or university. That represents a significant departure from uh, the practice a half a century or more ago. Uh, when Bart Giamatti um, was made the president of Yale University in the I'm trying to think maybe it was now in the early 1970s. He was appointed, he was a member of the Romance Languages Department and was appointed directly to the presidency from that position. He came from the faculty. 
He was not a career administrator, and he had a faculty member's view of the world. He had thought about educational uh, values uh, as a as a scholar, in his case, a historian and uh, teacher of literature would think about them. He had reflected on the philosophical foundations of higher education at Yale and elsewhere. And he, he knew his own mind when it came to these matters. Bureaucrats of all kinds tend to be deferential. They're not independent-minded. They don't have many thoughts of their own. They follow directives. They implement plans. They devise uh, strategies. They write, they write mission statements. And all of that is really foreign to the old-time spirit of the scholarly uh, and independent-minded college president who knowing his or her own mind could say to the students, you're wrong about education. You don't really understand what's at stake here and let me let me enlighten you. But if you don't have thoughts of your own about that, you have nothing to say to the students who are pressing for educational reform. You have no ground to stand on. And so your posture will be deferential and conciliatory to give the students what they want in order to keep the peace. So... What does this then say about um, the role of administrators at all levels, from president on down, uh, and uh, the cooperation of much of the faculty, if not most? Um, what does that say about them in terms of the character of modern education? I know that's a big question, but uh, that begs for a big, yeah. big answer. But yeah, it is, it is a big, it's a great question. It's a big, big question. I would say this, Ian. Uh, the the um, the emergence of what I'm calling the bureaucratic president as a as a as a national phenomenon. This is no accident. It is. It isn't that it just happened um, for no reason at all. It is uh, a consequence, a reflection of the fact that our colleges and universities have become larger and vastly more complex institutions with many more moving parts to oversee and manage. Their finances have become more complicated. Uh, departments and programs have multiplied. Um, fundraising has become a, a business unto itself, and all of that requires a degree of managerial attention that was not true, uh, was not the case 50 years ago uh, or, or more. So there have been uh, deep structural, perhaps irreversible changes in the whole character and composition of, uh, of, of higher education in America. And that has called forth, understandably enough, a whole cadre of leaders, uh, bureaucratic in outlook and style, to manage these more complicated enterprises. Um, I don't know what can be done about that. Uh, if uh, I, I thought this were, uh, you know, a blip or an accident or something like that, I'd be much more optimistic about the possibility of returning to a more value-directed uh, uh, 
conception of leadership in higher education. But the but the forces are deep; they're structural, and uh, and and this this is this is changing metaphors. This is a vast ocean liner now that can't be turned around on a dime. But <laughs> excuse me. Having said that, I do think that if a half a dozen college or university presidents uh, who fit a different model, who are intellectual leaders, independent-minded uh, philosophers uh, or theoreticians of higher education, were to rise to the top in a few schools, here and there schools with enough prominence and prestige to carry some others along, I think that would make a national difference, just a half a dozen. Um, but uh, that may seem like a modest ambition. In today's uh, world, uh, it's asking a lot and more than may be possible. So turning to the substance of your arguments in the book, you divide your book into four chapters. Uh, the first is entitled Excellence. Uh, you note that Yale promotes excellence, and you distinguish this from an, uh, other perhaps end goals or values that universities embrace. What do you mean by excellence, and uh, where do you see it? Uh, where do you see other universities going? Right. That, that really is the central question of the, the book, and I'm happy to have the chance to say a few words about it. Um, when we use the word excellence in a restricted uh, or limited sense, we have no trouble with the concept, and it will seem obvious to any thoughtful observer that Yale and schools like it are actively pursuing cultivating, nourishing excellence in this uh, limited or restricted sense. By limited or restricted, I mean limited or restricted to a particular activity. For example, the study of mathematics uh, or of Greek syntax or of avian evolution. You could pick a thousand different subjects which are taught here at Yale and other universities like it. And there are people who are pursuing those subjects in a, uh, in a serious and disciplined way. And some of them uh, achieve great things. Others don't make nearly as much progress. There are outstanding figures and works in each of these fields. Each of these fields has its own internal norms of excellence. And the job of the university is to provide the resources. One of the jobs of the university is to provide the resources that the participants in each of these uh, particular uh, pursuits or inquiries need in order to do the really excellent work that they aim to do and that some, not all, succeed in doing. But when we begin talking about excellence in a broader and less restricted sense, people begin to get nervous with the use of the term itself, and it becomes much harder to establish a meaningful connection between excellence in this wider sense and the educational program uh, of Yale and places like it. By excellence in a wider sense, in a less restricted sense, 
what I mean, what I call, describe in the book, uh, uh, is excellence in the comprehensive work of being human, of living a fulfilling, uh, rewarding, uh, responsible, uh, uh, effective, and flourishing human life. That is a question of all-encompassing breadth. It isn't localized or restricted in the way the questions pursued by mathematicians or evolutionary biologists or or students of ancient Greek are. It sweeps in everything. It's a question about the whole of life and what to do with it and how to get the most out of it and uh, and do the best job. That's a an awkward way, perhaps, of putting it, but uh, this is really what I mean. Do the best job of of living uh, uh, as well as you possibly can. That uh, ideal used to be at the center of the humanities. To return to the uh, question with which we began at the start of the conversation, it used to be that teachers and students of the humanities said. Well, of course, we're learning some very valuable things as we go along the way. We're learning what Plato said and Dante and, and Montaigne and uh, Virginia Woolf and George Eliot and, and so on. But in addition, we are uh, becoming more cultured, refined, curious, uh, thoughtful, observant, uh, respectful of the past, self-critical. And that all of these qualities are ones that conduce to living well in the overall or comprehensive sense that I've just described. Put differently, the aim of the humanities used to be understood as the development of the whole person, of the whole human being. And that, uh, that idea uh, is one that has not fallen completely by the wayside, but be- it fallen under a shadow of skepticism and perhaps even disrepute. And the reason why I argue in my book is that it has an anti-democratic implication, which many people find disturbing and that runs sharply against the grain of contemporary sensibilities. We have no difficulty saying that some mathematicians are better than others. It it doesn't trouble us to say that some uh, classicists uh, have a a better grasp of Homeric Greek than others do. We have no difficulty ranking achievements when we're talking about limited, uh, restricted pursuits of this kind. But when it comes to the comprehensive pursuit of living the best life that you can, to suggest that some get further in this work than others do, and that the point of an education in the humanities is to equip us to move ahead in the endeavor and to, uh, to do a better job not only than we would otherwise do, but but, the, but a better job than that many people 
do in their lives, uh, to be excellent in the work of living. And uh, people recoil at that and say, are you suggesting there, there is a, an aristocratic class of superior souls, the beneficiaries of this education, who stand higher on the rung of being than others, and so on and so forth. And um, in my book, I, I, I own up to that and say that is exactly what I'm uh, saying. I, I don't suggest I'm at pains to emphasize that I do not mean to imply that excellence in living takes one and only one form, that there is a clear, discrete model to which we all ought to conform ourselves. Excellence in the work of being human uh, takes a variety of different forms. I wouldn't say an endless variety of different forms, but a, but a number of recognizably different ones. But I insist on the distinction between greatness uh, on the one hand and ordinariness and banality on the other and insist further that it is the job of the humanities to carry us as far as we can go from what is banal and ordinary and coarse and common into the realm of higher and more refined uh, sensibilities, achievements, and, uh, and characters. That's a really old-fashioned way of thinking about the humanities and describing them, but there is a long tradition in American letters of thinking and speaking about the aims of education in exactly these terms. And in my book, I invoke Thomas Jefferson. I might have invoked Fred, Frederick Douglass just as, uh, uh, as easily and, and well. Uh, and this has been lost sight of under the pressure, I claim in my book, under the pressure of the intrusion into the academy, into the realm of higher education, of a hyper-democratic sensibility, which insists vehemently, vigorously, at every turn, on the absolute equality of human beings in all fundamental respects. That's what my book is written against. Uh, I uh, use the word natural, the phrase natural aristocracy, uh, 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 without embarrassment, uh, in a very pointed and deliberate way. It has caused some of my readers to recoil in horror. Um, and I, you know, I've been cautioned by, I was cautioned by some friends while I was writing the book not to use the phrase for fear that I would turn too many people off. And I said, no, this is really what I have it in mind to defend. And I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to be embarrassed by the hyper-democratic uh, distaste for the word and the concept, um, uh, which uh, uh, has, has put it in such jeopardy in our colleges and universities themselves. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that uh, response that you gave. I want to talk about the hyper-democratic sensibility in a few minutes, but before that, I want to characterize your argument. Uh, It seems to me that this is an argument that if we were to place it in the time frame of uh, political thinkers and uh, philosophical writers, uh, there's famously within the academy and has been made uh, note of outside of it in terms of popular writing, uh, the battle between the so-called ancients and the moderns. And uh, this battle is between uh, most notably people like Plato and Aristotle uh, for the ancients. And the moderns would be people perhaps uh, best represented by people like um, Thomas Hobbes, uh, maybe John Locke to a degree, um, and also probably uh, John Stuart Mill, who um, the moderns argue that uh, there is this degree of depravity that's inherent to humans and that education... uh, can have a um, a refining effect, uh, but ultimately, what we're trying to do is, uh, in the mill sense, we're trying to create the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. And there's obvious political implications from this uh, notion of morality um, and human development. And what you use, the term you use, flourishing, is most frequently associated with the Aristotelian view of the ancients wherein that there is something toward which we can all aspire uh, for fullness as a human, uh, but it takes a lot of work. And there is this ranking, as it were, of quality. And so there are very few people who will ultimately make it to that. And I, 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 by, the, by the way I've set it up, I assume then that you might agree that you're more in line with the ancient view, perhaps, than the modern, or are you? Oh, my goodness. That is uh, the last question you asked was a large one. This one is, <laughs> is, 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 is cosmic in its, in its scope. Uh, let me just say a few things, uh, starting with some uh, simple observations and moving to one or two of a more um, – of, of a more complexly philosophical kind. First, uh, I draw my heroes um, from all uh, periods and epochs in the history of Western thought. Aristotle is, is one of them. Uh, John Stuart Mill is another. I do think that you mischaracterize Mill um, uh, in, in the sense that Mill had he couldn't get away from the notion that there are higher pleasures and lower ones and that the distinction between them really matters when it comes to thinking about how to organize a social order. But uh, I'm particularly attracted to Mill's uh, uh, libertarian ideal of uh, free expression and free self-development. Burke is a hero of mine. I love Thomas Hobbes. I don't know that I can call him a hero, but how can you not fall in love with Thomas Hobbes uh, uh, from the first page of the Leviathan on? Um, 
among Americans, John Adams, Abraham Lincoln is, is at the very top of the list, Jefferson too. Um, but uh, with respect to the broader philosophical question about the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns and, uh, and, and whether I put myself in the former camp, align myself with the ancients, and perhaps with Aristotle in, in particular, the, the answer is only sort of and up to a point. And that if I had to describe myself, I would say I am a, a hybrid, um, an ancient slash modern of the kind best represented by my real philosophical hero, Spinoza, about whom I have written another very long book, the book uh, uh, just before this latest one on higher education, uh, an 1,100-page defense of Spinozism uh, as the key to all aspects of modern life and, and culture. But here, here's the point, Ian, that I want to make. Um, uh, Aristotle um, emphasizes the centrality of human flourishing in his, uh, in his ethic, in his ethical, in his treatise on ethics and on politics. We're guided by, we should be guided by a notion of fulfillment as the, the building out, uh, uh, the filling out of our human, uh, our distinctive human powers and capacities. And I'm with Aristotle in, uh, in that respect, but not with him in another. Aristotle thinks that fulfillment comes in one, or I guess you'd have to say two uh, uh, fundamental flavors the philosophical and the political, and that's it. And uh, the, uh, the aim of living is to conform yourself to one or the other of those. What is entirely missing in Aristotle's philosophy is any sense that fulfillment means or, or includes as one of its components finding your own individual genius, as Emerson puts it, the, the, the distinctive quality uh, of, of, of outlook, temperament, uh, uh, experience that sets you apart from every other individual in the world. That, that is, just doesn't appear anywhere, that thought, in Aristotle's philosophy, and I think ultimately for very deep philosophical, metaphysical reasons. So I borrow, I want to borrow from Aristotle the idea of, um, of flourishing or fulfillment as the essential concept uh, in thinking about how to, how to live well comprehensively as a human being. But I want to, as it were, individualize that concepts. I, I, want to, uh, I want to break it up from the monolithic form in which it appears in Aristotle's writings into a thousand, a billion little shards, every one distinct from every other. And that latter refinement, if you wish, of Aristotle's idea is more than a refinement. It is a fundamental reworking of it. 
in light uh, of certain fundamentally modern ideas or discoveries, beliefs, however you wish to characterize them. And it, the, the result is a very distinctive blending of ancient and modern themes in a way uh, that you find, to take a couple of American examples, in the essays of Emerson, I've mentioned Emerson already, or the poetry of Walt Whitman. Uh, they are my American uh, 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 heroes when it comes to the conception of self-fulfillment. Um, uh, philosophically, as I've said, Spinoza is my uh, my landmark, and Spinoza, Spinoza's philosophy is an absolutely remarkable blend of of ancient ideas, themes, commitments on the one hand, and radically modern ones on the other. So, I think the the phrase "quarrel of the ancients and the moderns," though I completely understand what people mean. Uh, by it, and it it has its uses up to a point, obscures the fact, for me, the fundamentally important fact, that the way out of all of the dilemmas which that quarrel seems to uh, create, to give rise to the way out of it, is to look for a synthetic alternative to both of the warring camps, which as it were, captures the best of both and avoids uh, their respective liabilities. That's what I tried to do in my previous book. That is the conception of fulfillment that's in the background of this one. Of course, this is a, a book written um, for a wider audience in more popular terms, and I don't get into the metaphysical weeds here that I do in my previous book. But the metaphysics of the, of the other book whose title is Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan. The metaphysics of that book is in the background here. At least it was in the background of my mind as I was writing my pages about the humanities and the idea of the fulfillment in the work of being human. That's a very long and complicated response to your question, but Ian, you invited it because you asked a monster of a question and, I sure uh, and gave me carte blanche. <laughs> well, that's the uh, that's the uh, task of the interviewer is to throw you a curveball that you respond to uh, eloquently and concisely. I agree with you. The Manichaean uh, implication uh, of the divide between the ancients and the moderns is a bit of a crude one, um, and it's kind of a shorthand that a lot of people use to talk about a variety of different distinctions, which are not always obviously black and white, and sometimes the chasm is not as great. Uh, between the ancients and the moderns, as is implied by that. So moving on to the hyper-democratic uh, sensibility, you reference uh, Alexis de Tocqueville several times uh, in your work in this book, and you talk about some of his fears. Um, and so can you explain his fears and uh, how, how they uh, fit into your understanding of the modern university? Sure. Uh, Tocqueville is the hero of the book. Um, uh, Tocqueville visited the United States in Andrew Jackson's uh, second term in the mid-1830s and um, wrote a book about his experiences and observations, which remains, I think, in, in many ways the most uh, 
uh, perspicuous and prescient guide to American life, to the American mind that anyone has ever composed. Um, Tocqueville had a mixed reaction to American democracy. You might summarize it by saying that uh, Tocqueville's view was two, maybe two and a half cheers for democracy, but not a, a full three. He admired the American democratic order, uh, both on its political side and its cultural side. He described America, as, the American regime, as the most just that human beings had ever constructed for themselves. He was deeply admiring of the spirit of individualism, uh, the pragmatic can-do attitude of Americans that he encountered everywhere he he went. But not everything uh, in America seemed right to Tocqueville. And he noted in particular that the the democracy that he so admired had almost necessarily had um, pathologies of its own, pathologies that went along with its virtues and strengths. And uh, he stressed a couple of these. One was the tendency of American democracy to, to level out or flatten down the distinction between what is great uh, uh, beautiful, um, profound uh, works of genius and distinction on the one hand, and what is common and ordinary on the other. You might call this the anti-aristocratic uh, uh, implication of democratic life. And, and Tocqueville believed in the reality of that distinction between the great and the ordinary, and in the importance of preserving it if one wants to have a culture um, worth uh, having. Secondly, Tocqueville thought that the spirit of American individualism, oddly, even paradoxically, it might seem, encouraged a corresponding uh, spirit of uh, of deference uh, to public opinion, to what he called the, the, the tyranny of majority opinion, to what the other people are saying, to what one's neighbor thinks and does. Uh, and, and Tocqueville explained this in, a, um, in an interesting way. He said the very the freedom and individualism of American life which encourages each of us to make up our minds for ourselves, brings with it a heightened anxiety about what it is we really think and believe. That, making up your mind for yourself is a huge responsibility. It's a burden as well as a gift. Um, and many people, burdened by the anxiety, uh, dispel it by deferring to uh, to, to the mob mind of the people at large by conforming their views to public opinion. And Tocqueville said, if, if that continues too long, uh, the people will stop to cease thinking for themselves 
and they will become ripe for takeover by a tyrant or a despot. Um, a, a thoughtless a mob is just one step away from a plebiscitary Caesarist demagogue who grabs the reins of power and starts telling people what to think. So Tocqueville's dilemma, as he viewed America, was this. Democracy is wonderful. Uh, the, the, the fairness and justice of the American uh, uh, regime would seem to him so impressive and worthy uh, of, of preservation. And yet it comes with these pathologies. Is there a way to have your cake and eat it too? Can you have the, the benefits without the side effects? And he thought, no, that they belong together almost unavoidably. Really, they did belong together unavoidably. But he did think that it was possible to offset or ameliorate the worst effects of what I'm calling the pathologies of democratic life by allowing or encouraging the existence within the wider democratic society of small islands, as one might call them, of aristocratic sensibility and endeavor. Um, places, institutions, groupings, where like-minded individuals with a taste for what is excellent and rare and a fierce commitment to thinking for themselves, uh, to independent-mindedness, might gather and... Uh, uh, and uh, and shelter, uh, as it were, from the democratic storm, and uh, and and preserve in their own work a reverence not only for uh, the, the 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 beauty and excellence of older forms, but also the habit of independent mindedness, which Tocqueville thought must be preserved if the larger democracy is to remain. Uh, healthy, or even to survive in the long run. And among these aristocratic islands that Tocqueville identified, he put our colleges and universities near the top of the list. And that thought uh, motivates much of the argument of my book. I believe our colleges and universities ought to promote the spirit of uh, of, of independent-mindedness uh, and, and a, a, a reverence for what is distinctive and great and fine, and uh, uh, and and uh, and in the souls in the souls of the young people that they are educating, uh, nourish, cultivate a, a set of attitudes that might be called in a loose. Uh, uh, sense aristocratic and that uh, these young people when they have finished with college and uh, and uh, become um, uh, productive citizens in the in their in the larger democracy to which we all go the minute we walk off campus that they would possess the qualities of mind and heart uh, and of soul that would equip them for positions of leadership that our democracy needs if it isn't to degenerate into a, a, a thoughtless uh, a, a mob 
which flows back and forth like a, a, a like a like a like a fluid that has no guiding mechanism of its own that they would help to provide some stability and direction to the demos to the people um, Tocqueville thought that too I believe or something like it and uh, many others who have written about the aims and responsibilities of higher education in the past have taken exactly this view this was the view for example that Irving Babbitt defended in his book uh, um uh, uh, education and Democracy, uh, written sometime in the early, late 20s or early 1930s. And uh, much of what Babbitt says in that book will seem hopelessly old-fashioned to readers today. But the heart of his argument is correct. Our democracy needs leaders who uh, have an exceptional degree of cultivation uh, uh, in uh, uh, thoughtfulness and above all the independence of mind which protects them from being just carried along by the latest opinion poll uh, and whatever other people happen to be saying. So one danger that you've articulated that Tocqueville most eloquently discussed was the tyranny of the majority right. and the tendencies in, of course, the most obvious application in American life, and it still applies today, is for electoral politics. In other words, who are your political leaders and policymakers? Right. Um, but these islands of excellence in regard to universities, um, you are obviously suggesting um, that they have, they meaning universities, many of them have succumbed to no longer distinguishing themselves as uh, protected, so to speak, uh, areas wherein free thought will be allowed yes. to flourish. Yes. And so I, that's a point well taken. But at the same time, it, bring, it raises one question. Is that that succumbing on the part of universities, succumbing to a tyranny of the majority, or is it a particular strand of a minority view? In other words, um, what they've succumbed to, what they've embraced, that conformity of thought that sometimes is enforced legally on university campuses, is that a majority sentiment or is it a rule of a particular minority? It's a difficult question to answer. Um, My concern is um, less about the takeover of our colleges and universities by the champions of a particular political program or ideology than it is by the politicization of higher education in general. Today, that takes the form of a hyper-democratic, progressive left um, emphasizing an identitarian conception of politics and pushing its agenda on campus as it does off campus. That's the form it takes today. But that hasn't always been the case. In the 1950s, for example, the threat to academic independence came from the right, from the McCarthyites who were hounding uh, left-leaning professors out of their jobs. in our colleges and universities. The important thing 
from the Tocquevillian perspective that I defend in the book is protecting the independence and a a political non-political character of our colleges and universities from politicization of any kind whether it come from the left or the right um, it is the the separateness the independence of the realm of higher education from the political forces that wash over us back and forth in the rest of our lives it's that independence which gives them um, uh, I'll put it a little differently, which which makes it possible for them to play the special role in the overall moral economy of American life that Tocqueville assigns them. And once they become adjuncts to politics of whatever kind, of left-wing politics or right-wing politics, they lose their independence and cease to be able to perform that balancing or equilibrating function as well as they uh, might and, and should, and the Tocqueville believed they have to in order to counterbalance the inevitable pathological tendencies of democratic life. Another area that you are concerned about regarding trends in higher education is the what you describe as a vocational ideal. So can you explain that and the danger that you see that it poses to higher ed? Sure. This is related to um, something we were talking about earlier when we were discussing the, uh, uh, the nature of the humanities and their uh, uh, role, special role in educational life. Um, I think what I mean by vocational ideal will be uh, intuitively obvious to most of your listeners. What I mean by it is the idea that one goes to college uh, these days to acquire the skills and learn the disciplines and, and maybe you know form the uh, make the connections that you need to have in order to prosper uh, in a career uh, to find a, a, a good satisfying, remunerative job once you've graduated that will sustain you for some time, if not for the, uh, for the rest of your working life. People go to school to get ready to work. And uh, in school, they uh, um, uh, acquire the equipment they need in order to find the job they want to have. That's uh, a universal concern and ambition. And I do not mean to uh, deride it uh, or demean it at all. Uh, it's obviously of tremendous importance to students themselves and, of course, to their parents and families, too. But though it is a vital part of education, it's not the whole of it at least as I think of it. Um, education uh, in a college or university which claims to offer its students a, a, a liberal arts education is more than just preparation for a job or for a graduate school that will in turn lead to a job. It is an opportunity to uh, 
find out a little more about who you are, what you care about, what what really matters and moves you uh, as a human being, and and what you think you might want to make out of your life, not just in the working part of it, which is an important part of life, but not the whole of it. We all know that. What you want to make out of your life, uh, uh, all things considered as a whole. And that is the question. Now I'm circling back to what we were talking about before. That question, what's, what does it mean to live well in a comprehensive sense? That's the question the humanities have traditionally uh, uh, set them Themselves the task of exploring. And uh, it's fine, it's indispensable even, that a student acquire the know-how that will help him or her after a graduation take the next step in life and move towards successful, satisfying employment. But it's crucial also that those years, those undergraduate years, which are so exceptionally free, freer than the years before and in many ways freer than the years after, that those exceptionally free years be seen for what they are, an opportunity to do something that one may never again have the chance to do in life, which is to take a step back and say, whoa, here I am. I'm alive. I'm living. I've got years ahead of me, hopefully. What do I want to make of them? What what do I want to make of myself? And by the way, who am I? What do I really care about? How do I define myself and my relations to others, my responsibilities, uh, my convictions and uh, beliefs? And if that opportunity is missed, it may not come again. Well, that's uh, it, that point, I'm at sorry. At least it won't come in the, it, it won't come. It, it won't come in the same wonderfully open and free form that it does in the college years when all of the vast resources of the student's college or university are at his or her disposal for pursuing it. Well, that point is well taken. I remember when I was an undergrad and I was approaching my senior year and uh, the major, I was a history major, and they had a, the prospect for a uh, year-long, essentially a, a thesis um, for the senior thesis, and I asked my advisor about it, and I'll never forget his response has stuck with me, and I've employed it in my own teaching now. He said, I would suggest you don't do the senior thesis. I was surprised by this because I thought it was something of a feather in your cap if you had done one and done it well. He said, you have the opportunity now that you'll never have again, this was him talking to me, to take a variety of courses take those free electives that are otherwise going to be crowded out by the time right. you need to spend on your senior thesis. And it surprised me, but I took his advice. I did not do the senior thesis and I did take classes that I never would have uh, exposed myself to otherwise and might've missed out on uh, as I pursued my professional career. Um, but it seems to me that, you know, what you're describing really is there's a natural logical built-in tension when you go through you finished high school and then you're facing the prospect of four years in order to earn a bachelor's degree. And you're taking out sometimes a house mortgage without a house. Sure. And, and so you, you must consider, okay. In, in other words, I'm very sympathetic to what you just described as these unique enriching four years that you cannot probably experience as you grow older. 
uh, but only fleetingly. But at the same time, there is this concern for job preparation, career of preparation. Of course. And so there's this built-in tension that it seems to me just uh, it's structural. In other words, you just can't completely eradicate the problem. You know, you're absolutely right about that, Ian. And I, I would say that uh, the the responsible course is for the grown-ups in the room, by which I mean administrators and faculty on our college and university campuses, to acknowledge honestly uh, the 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 imperative reality of the need to equip yourself to take the next step in life and to prepare for graduate school, professional school, for a job, whatever. But to make the case at the same time for the importance and value of this fleeting opportunity to step back and uh, entertain questions and doubts that you may never have the opportunity with a comparable degree of freedom and with similar resources at your disposal to entertain again. Make the case for that, but in a way that doesn't, um, uh, how should I put it, close its eyes to the obvious fact that the economic and material uh, and other pressures that are on our students to find their way forward toward a uh, response, a respect, a respectable and well-paying job, those pressures are immense and enormous, and they can't be gotten. They can't, can't be gotten rid of. I don't even know that one would wish to get rid of them if you could. They're, but in any event, they're a they're a, a fixture in our lives at this point. So you have um, mentioned earlier that you got some advice from colleagues about how you uh, some warnings, perhaps, about how you ought to approach this. Um, what has been the reaction? of your colleagues, both at Yale and uh, at other universities or in the academy in general? Um, predictably mixed, um, which is what I had expected. I've had uh, lots of cheerleaders, uh, some here, um, others off the, the Yale campus. Many people have written to me saying, thank goodness, I'm so glad you've written this book. Uh, it needed to be said and uh, uh, I'm just I'm just delighted that you did say it. Um, I've had students here at Yale uh, come to see me in the quiet of my office hours to say, "You've you've given me some breathing room to express views that um, it would otherwise be uncomfortable for me to articulate in the current environment." And thank you for for that. I've also been. Uh, attacked in the Yale Daily News and elsewhere by faculty colleagues who think I'm terribly misguided and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and advocating a retrograde view which they see as illiberal and hostile to the, the great forward steps that our colleges and universities have taken in the last years. Um, and I've responded to those. But of course, I knew that was coming. It didn't, didn't surprise me. And it, in a way, I've been gratified by even those, even the most 
critical responses because it's given me a chance to reply in kind and to get this debate up into the daylight where others can instead of instead of whispering in the in the shadows can express themselves and take a position and uh, and we can have it out uh, in the in the open no holds barred there's nothing wrong with that with a good old-fashioned robust argument um, and without it degenerating into name calling and personal invective and the like which it certainly hasn't here at Yale so anyway yeah and I've gotten some I've gotten some flattering reviews I've gotten some critical reviews I would like to think that my critical reviewers um, missed the point of what I was trying to say they would probably disagree but uh, again that was pretty much what I expected I I would I, would have been surprised, and I don't even know that I would have wished to be showered with un- uniform accolades. Uh, that just wasn't in the cards. And uh, I-, I reconciled myself to the thought that if you're going to say anything um, about any issue that people feel deeply about and with respect to which there are profound differences of opinion, you're going ca- to catch some flack that's coming your way. So no surprises and uh, nothing so far that's thrown me badly off my balance. So my last question is uh, you describe the state of the university in many ways today. What do you think, if anything, can be done to actually change the state of affairs to draw the university back into what you want it to be? I'll return to something I said earlier in the conversation, Ian, a half a dozen thoughtful, courageous college or university presidents would make a world of difference. More backbone in the boards of directors of these schools would make a tremendous uh, difference. And a de-emphasis on uh, protecting uh, students from the dangers of wounded feelings and hurts uh, to their self-esteem and all of the rest of it. That would be good, too. There's way too much of that on campus. And there's way too much uh, of, the, of the siloing, of the breaking up into groups uh, defined along racial and ethnic and gender lines. Uh, um, our uh, campuses these days are wonderfully diverse places. They're just unrecognizably different from the campus I knew as an undergraduate 50 years ago. And that's great. I love the way the Yale campus looks um, with its diverse student body. But uh, having won that victory, I don't want to compromise it um, by returning to a world in which people think of themselves first and foremost as uh, as, as black or Hispanic or transgendered or, or privileged white and uh, lose so much of the ground that we've gained by opening our universities and colleges up in the last half century. So all of that would help, but let's start with a half a dozen uh, college presidents who know their mind about higher education have so, who have thought about it 
and don't just mouth conventional pieties and are willing to stand up for what they believe. That would be a start. The book is The Assault on American Excellence, and we've been joined today by its author, Anthony Cronman. Professor Cronman, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ian. I've enjoyed our conversation.